I'm Allie J. And I'm Crystal O. And welcome to Not Your Token Black Girl, where we recover from spreading black girl magic wherever we go. From careers and cocktails to men and mental health, we're breaking it all down on what it means to wear the token crown. So if you've ever said, I'm not your token, fill in the blank, then this podcast is for you. A fun and witty show that's a little bit shady, but 100% true. It's Saturday brunch combo with the girls in a quick 20 minutes. Now let's get started. It's the season one finale of Not Your Token Black Girl. On today's episode, we have two special guests. Amber Webb Booker is an attorney, activist, and podcast co-host of Brokish. Farida Keenan is the host of Final Cut Fro. Check out her channel on YouTube. All right. Well, welcome back, guys. This is our season one finale um, and the third um, episode, um, I guess you can say, of us discussing race in America. And this time we have pulled together strong black women um, yes, from our really tribe, <laughs> get real plugs in, um, <laughs> to talk about the same thing we've been talking about for the last few weeks, but um, just from the perspective of black women, um, we're always on the front lines of every civil rights movement there has been in this country, um, often risking our mental and physical safety to advance causes. So it was really important for us to pull together um, Black women um, to kind of wrap up this season and wrap up this conversation on race in America. Um, So I'm just going to toss out a question and I'm going to give it to Amber because I saw this on your Facebook earlier today talking about um, the issues in police departments across the country, but specifically in Atlanta, um, the blue flu as the next pandemic in America. Police officers are walking off the job because they're pissed we're holding them accountable. As an attorney, what are the legal ramifications of this? Kind of give us your thoughts on that. So I, I think it just is completely ironic, but also it is consistent with the history of policing in America. I think if you know anything about policing in America, it has evolved from the trade of catching runaway slaves. So this idea of Black people rebelling against um, white authority, um, I think is very consistent with that. So this notion that we as Black people are saying to um, police forces that we don't have to be perfect, um, particularly if you look at the Rayshard Brooks case. We have a Black district attorney saying that it does not matter that a Black man was intoxicated, that he was obstructing a roadway, that he took off running, that he grabbed a taser, um, that you still cannot take his life in violation of the law um, and police officers being antagonistic to that message, I think that that is historically consistent with the idea that comes out of uh, catching runaway slaves, this idea that we are not going to tolerate Black people being rebellious against white people without consequence. So. Um, As an attorney, I think that 
it's more important for us to know the history than the law because what they are doing is abusing the law. They're calling in sick. So because they have unions, they have, um, you know, negotiated with police departments, certain amounts of sick time and vacation time. So they're not breaking any laws, but it's important to know the history behind how police forces have evolved and what they've evolved from to see the pattern. You know, this is about, policing black bodies that that is what policing evolves from and so i think that it's just interesting to see people who are tasked with protecting and serving being upset that they're held accountable for times when they haven't protected and served and also what i think is interesting too is that when you treat the people you're supposed to protect and serve like military combatants and they respond like military combatants but then you get upset that they respond like military combatants and say well now i don't want to work anymore because you can't have it both ways you can't say well we don't want to protect and serve because you're holding us accountable for when we fail to protect and serve but we're supposed to protect and serve, but we're treating you like military combatants, but we don't want you to act like military combatants. And when you act like military combatants, we're going to throw infantile temper tantrums and we're not going to come to work. So what is it? What do you want? Right. Um, so I think that historically it fits the pattern, but I also think that the temper tantrum is also consistent too with, you know, what happens when people who are in power are accustomed to getting their way and they stop. So I saw something earlier today where it said that American police forces have been breaking um, the, the Geneva law. Um, again, my area of expertise is not law, um, but it was talking about, and I can't remember the exact details, but how you cannot use tear gas against um, people. Unarmed people. Unarmed people. You can't destroy um, resources like water for example, um, you can't just be firing rubber bullets. And so they went through a list of all of these um, laws or rules of engagement that our own police are breaking against Americans. Do you think this could lead to civil war? Is that too far of a stretch? I mean, we're in a civil war right now, quite frankly. I don't think that um, we have done everything that we should do in terms of the United States being called to task for the international law violations that are occurring because mm -hmm. Geneva, the Geneva convention is international law. Mm -hmm. And so that is absolutely correct. When we, if we saw what the police here were doing in Iran or Iraq, we would be throwing the flag, the red flag saying you can't treat civilians like that. But that is absolutely true. You cannot use force against unarmed people in peaceful protests. That's basically what the Geneva Convention is saying. Um, that's, that's a form of chemical warfare. That's what tear gas is, it's chemical. And so when the United States, which is a signatory to the Geneva Convention, signed it, they agreed to abide by those policies and procedures that it set forth. And when it dispensed tear gas against unarmed protesters in DC, it did violate parts of the Geneva Convention. And I know that there are attorneys um, representing George Floyd, I believe, who have gone to the United Nations to make a civil rights and a human rights violation claim against the United Nations on the floor 
um, of the UN because it is a violation. And our country would do the same thing against any other nation if we saw them do to their citizens what we did to ours. Yeah, I, I, want, I wanted to jump in here because you know I hear a lot of, and I think a lot of what you're saying makes complete sense. And I actually didn't know much about the Geneva, is it the convention, the law? Mm-hmm. I had heard a few things, but wasn't really sure about it. But I went to a couple protests in Austin and they were doing the same things. You know, they were shooting rubber bullets. There's actually a guy that like lives close to my neighborhood that is doing this fundraiser thing because he got shot with a rubber bullet and it's literally busted his jaw to the fact that now he's wearing, he has his jaws to be wired shut for wow. five weeks, you know? So it's like, they, they were doing this stuff and I'm telling you, I was in the, in the trenches at the protest. Everything was peaceful. Everybody was wearing masks, hand sanitizer, like it was fine. Right. Um, but I think, you know, it, it got me thinking cause while I was there, it was a lot of arguing back and forth with the cops. It was a lot of like, you know, just kneel with us, just walk with us, just say that it's wrong so that we can all, you know, like people were really just trying to tell the cops like, Hey, you guys, this is your job. I get it. But like, you know, this is wrong. Like mm-hmm. stand with us. Let's all just say this is wrong together. Right. Um, and so it got me to thinking like, what is, what do you guys, and I, either one of you, anybody, like, what do you guys think the, the natural next steps are? Right. In my head, I'm like, I think defunding the police makes a lot of sense. Like that's where my initial head is. And then my, the other part of that is I think that I know they were doing a campaign, the eight, that can't wait. I think that that's an immediate thing that should take place, you know, and I've been a part of sending stuff for that where it's like, no, force and using any type of weapon is absolutely the last resort. Like it should never even come into play, you know, especially if somebody's hands are in the air. Like Mike Ramos, if you guys seen that video that happened in Austin about 30 minutes away from me, he had his hands up. Yeah. And I talked to my husband about this as well. I was like, yo, think about that. I was like, babe, what would you do in that situation? If you're like, I have my hands up. I'm saying I do not have a gun. I do not have a weapon. And the the police is shoots a rubber bullet at you and you get scared. You know, you're like in your head is fight or flight, right? It's like, oh my gosh, I'm either about to lose my life or I need to shield myself. And so you get in your car and then you get gunned down. So it's like, you know, I, I think that that's, that's my thoughts is what is the natural progression and, and what do we do in terms of policy and how does all that work in you guys' head? What are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, I, I think for me, when it comes to defunding the police, I think there really needs to be reform in how they train and the mental health awareness. Like, I understand that their job is very difficult and can be very scary. In fact, I was listening to a podcast and Jocko Willink, who's like a really big military guy, he was talking about how when he was in the military, they would spend 18 months training for like a six month insurgent. And he was talking about how like 20 to 40% of their time needs to be just training and fear training and understanding your neighborhood, understanding who you're policing and that people are constantly evolving. Communities are constantly evolving. They just aren't spending enough time training these people. Cause at the end of the day, like they're just, they're just people and they have a lot of power. Um, but I think that we need to do, a better job when we do defund the police and we do come up with a better idea on how to 
have our, our police in the streets that we really need to worry about how they're trained and then having mental health checks. Like how often are they seeing a psychiatrist? How often are they talking about their feelings and things that they've gone through? I'm sure a lot of what they see is very traumatizing and I don't want to downplay that. And not all police are bad, but I mean, he talked about for military training, like especially with some of the, the people who come in early, like, like you learn how to be in the streets and be scared and how to depersonalize, take a few deep breaths, realize what you're doing, where you are, how you're affecting the people that you are interacting with. And if you don't have that with the police, like what you can't train people like they're, they're the military and not fully give them the full training of the military, right? Like it's, I, for me, it's a mental health thing and it's just about training. That's, that's where I'm at. Also, I'm a former prosecutor. And what I will also say to that in terms of defunding the police, mm-hmm. we need to decriminalize a lot of things. So you're right. Yes. There, there's a lot of stuff that we look to criminal justice to do that is not criminal justice. Like I remember I used to get my jail chain every morning mm-hmm. and there were certain names I would see on it and I would recognize the name uh-huh. because these were homeless people using the jail as a hotel. So yes. they would go to places that they were criminally oh, mm-hmm. trespassed to, to get arrested on purpose so they could come to jail to eat and shower, mm-hmm. right? Or people who had mental health problems or drug yes. problems that were just mentally unstable, getting arrested for loitering, trespassing, you know, doing things like that. And so defunding the police really means reallocating resources while simultaneously decriminalizing things that don't need to be criminalized. There are certain things that we put a penal name tag on in our society that don't need to have a penal name tag on. We are the only industrial nation in the world that treats drug addiction like a crime. Mm -hmm. We are the only industrial nation in the world that treats homelessness like a crime. We are the only industrialized nation in the world that treats the mental health issues that oftentimes lead to domestic violence, that oftentimes lead to a lot of the issues that we see when we talk about um, petty theft and, and a lot of those things as crimes. And so some of the things that we depend on police to do, those are not functions that they are equipped to serve. Mm-hmm. We don't need police serving functions. When you have an intoxicated person asleep in their car, you don't need a police officer to address that. Right. You don't need somebody who's armed with a gun to address that. You need somebody who is familiar with that community, invested in the community, somebody who has some training, somebody mm-hmm. who has some awareness, who can go there de-escalate the situation, remove the roadway obstruction, get the person home safely, and and make sure that everybody is able to continue their activities so that the commerce is not interrupted and the person does not pose a threat to anybody. And so the problem is, is that crime in this country is attached to stations. So the things that we should be criminalizing, like wage theft, wage theft is the most common type of theft in America. You get a civil penalty for it. So if my job steals my wages, they get a civil penalty, even though that's the most common type of theft in America. But if I go down to my job and steal something, I'm going to get prosecuted for it. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? So we have to decriminalize things 
that are born out of problems that have roots that need to be addressed and stop looking to the police to address issues that they aren't qualified to address and reallocate those funds towards helping people get the things that they really need. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I think even, you know, reallocating funds to the education system, because I think that that becomes a big piece of, you know, why the police are the way they are, you know, Mm -hmm. there's like, and then just the communities in general, making sure that the communities have the resources they need within the schools like that. I feel very passionate about, um, as, as well as the mental health stuff. I can tell you again, another personal case. It's like, I know for a fact that when someone is having a mental breakdown, they're not, they're, they're sending the police and the police is then taking that person either to jail or to a state hospital, you know? So it's like, they don't, I I totally agree with that in like decriminalizing certain things and reallocating funds to make it to where now social workers can go and handle situations like domestic violence cases, police show up, right? I used to work at the domestic violence hotline and we would have to call police who weren't really trained. And it's like, no, can we not get some social workers, like pay them better so that they can then be on the front lines and showing up to those situations and maybe have police backup. But at the end of the day, it's like, a police coming in like the military doesn't help, right? Because they're just going to get back together. It later. They get back together, it escalates the situation, and now it gets worse for that person. Mm-hmm. And, and that's for both men and women, right, that are calling the hotline. So, I mean, I, I, again, I just agree with that. I think the, the obvious um, topic of conversation is, is focusing on the police. But I also feel like this spills out over all of America, right? Black women are more likely to die in childbirth. Why, Why? right? Um, Inner city schools are less funded, meaning poor education, which puts them, you know, on this track to prison as as we've seen. Um, I recently wrote a piece on LinkedIn talking about how unchecked police brutality spills into the workforce. As an HR professional, I see racism woven throughout corporate America all the time. You're not the right culture fit. Um, You know, Mm. he's just not the right candidate for this um, position on the executive board, right? So, I mean, it's kind of like, where do we start, right? We've kind of opened up Pandora's box in America. Yeah, the UN should probably come in here and take a look at the way Black people have been treated since we were forced to come here. But do we need to look at our healthcare system? Besides healthcare for all, why are Black women dying? Why are Black patients dying? And why aren't doctors believing us when we say we're in pain? Why are we least educated? Why are we filling prison populations? I mean, if we had to pick up place to start where would we start yeah I think I you mean, go ahead Amber I think you have to start with the fact that America is fundamentally dishonest and until we tell the truth when you build a country on the premise that people are property that reverberates into everything that touches and yeah. concerns those people So America is built on the denial of black personhood. They took people from Africa and brought them here and said, these people are now property. 
And so the denial of black personhood and the pillage and the plunder of native people and native land is part and parcel of the American identity, the American culture, and the American concept, the American Americanism. It is, it is who we are. It is in the constitution. We are three-fifths people, right? So that is imbued into how we are seen, into the messaging that comes out of the system. Um, the denial of Black personhood is a part of American messaging. It is the foundation of white supremacy, and it is built into the systemic inequity that is a part of this nation. And so it is really important for us to recognize that you can't have a nation that says you're not a person and expect to get equal health care and a fair education and not have discrimination in housing or not, ex or not face microaggression in a workplace. It, it is not possible unless and until you deconstruct that system. Yeah, I mean, and I, I was literally going on that track as well. So basically my question is, is we know that there are several systems um, that make up systemic oppression, right? What, which one of those systems, whether it be education, like um, medical, like whatever, where do we start and which one do you think is the greatest in hindering the black community? You know, I mean, they all do, but like what, what's the biggest, you know, my, my thing is, I think the policing, right? The government, the policing. Um, but I also, I'm really against really strong about education. I think that yeah. the, the lack I, of education and understanding on black, on things that make up our culture and our history, um, you know, is, is really, it's huge. I, I think defunding the police, the eight can't wait, I think that saves lives in, in, in the short term, right? But I think dismantling our education system um, and rebuilding it to where um, we are teaching our children the truth and full history, not just that of the conquerors, because we know those who conquer write history. Um, I think that begins to save lives on a long-term basis. Right. Yeah. So if we see this white officer in Atlanta potentially facing the death penalty for killing an unarmed black man, that might cause a few more to say, you know what, I'm going to think twice before I shoot this black person because I could face the death penalty. But I think if we start educating the next generation as to um, what Amber was talking about, how policing in this country started, how we're working to dismantle that, how we're essentially working to dismantle the very foundation of a country that's built on denying blackness, then we're raising an entire generation that can turn around and educate their own children. And that's how we start the long-term um, journey of saving more black lives. So if I had to vote for one, mm, that's tough. I would probably go with education because we see even in the few cases where cops have been convicted and they get their sentences it hasn't stopped them so it, it helps somewhat but it, I don't think it's the long-term solution it's to go with education first yeah no I definitely think and again this is open-ended but I definitely think education it makes a lot of sense 
And, you know, I even would go as far as to say, you know, I think within the schools in high school and middle school, the celebrated things about the black culture need to be be said, you know, like, I don't think that they teach you about the NAACP. Like, I don't think they teach you about black wall street. Like we, on our other podcasts, that was one of our questions was like, Hey, when did you guys first start learning about like the successes of black people and certain things that happened within um, the black community? And they, they say college. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. like, that's not okay. Like we shouldn't just learn slavery. Like mm-hmm. we need to learn all the progressive about all the progressions within the black community as well. And what has been done to, to kind of tear us down and how we're still out achieving, even with the ha- hardships. Right. Like, I think that's yeah. so important. I agree with education and knowing our culture and knowing our background. I remember being in college, my dad told me he felt like one of his biggest failures of raising his daughters is that he didn't teach us more about black history and understanding our heroes and knowing our heroes. And he's someone who grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and he won't even talk about his childhood because it was so rough and so hard on him, but he still feels like he wishes he would have educated us more. Crystal, I don't think you know this, but like you were one of my first black friends. Isn't that crazy? And that was college because I didn't have, you were the first person I remember we were like at a party and I think uh, like one of our team parties and I remember you were like made some black joke and I was like, oh my God, we can do that? That's so awesome because I grew up with all white people, white people and Hispanic people. And so I really have kind of a different perspective because I, I mean, maybe I had one black friend, uh, he was a guy in like fifth grade, but um, just like you said, all I learned was just about slavery and how black slaves were treated and how blacks were utilized and, and, and just, just our horrible history in this country and all the negativity instead of learning all the positive things that we did despite right. where we started. So I have to agree with education. I think I, um, I, I understand what you guys are saying. I think for me, capitalism is the thing that must be deconstructed because America Mm -hmm. is built on greed. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason why education is the way it is, is because there is um, a financial incentive in peddling ignorance in our nation. Um, Ignorance is incentivized and commodified in our country. There is a reason why we don't teach history. There is a reason why um, we are written out of the history books. There is a reason why we teach that the civil rights, uh, that the civil war was a state's rights issue. Um, There is a reason why, and it is because um, we are interested in people thinking about this country in a certain way Mm -hmm. because we want them to remain invested in it because people are greedy. Um, America is greedy. That is why Black people were brought here to be agents of financial greed for white people. And so unless and until we deconstruct um, the capitalist engine, schools will continue to be places that primarily criminalize Black children, not teach them. Um, It will be a school-to-prison pipeline where Black children are over-diagnosed with 
um, learning disabilities where um, they are, you know, penalized with things like detentions and suspensions um, disproportionate to their white and brown counterparts. Um, you know, we'll see things in an educational environment that should not be there, uh, like Black girls being sexualized and vilified for having different attitudes and different cultural point of views, because school is not a place to learn. It's a, it's a, it's a money-making engine. It's a place where we know that the disciplinary records of third grade boys are used to project prison populations. The, the disciplinary records of third grade black boys are used to project prison populations. So we ain't sending kids to school to learn. It is an agent of capitalism because we making money off prisons. We making money off ignorance. And so until we decide that we care more about justice and equality than we do about dollars and cents in this country, it's going to continue to be a fundamentally unfair place. Right. So where do... Where do Black Americans go? I've started having very difficult conversations with my husband saying, okay, we have a two-year-old. She, believe it or not, is ready to go to school next year, which is just crazy. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about rampant gun violence. I'm thinking about, like you said, my girl's got a hot temper. Does that mean they're going to be looking at her like, oh, she's a black female because she'd be a problem down the road? Will she be marked? Do we go to Canada? Do we go to somewhere in Africa where at least skin color won't be an issue? What is we the... We go to Akon's new... new <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I love for for I love some it. black people, they are trapped in America. Yeah. But looking at you for highly educated, successful Black women, you have options for your family. Has the thought crossed your mind of saying, you know what, I'm tired, we're leaving? Or is that coming from a place of privilege and you say, no, they brought me here, my family's here, we're staying? It never crosses my mind to leave. But you're right, I have privilege. So I know how to advocate for my children, you know, right? I'm a, yeah, my, right. I, my, da my daughter, for example, I, I live in Prosper. So we, we, my kids go to Prosper ISD and my daughter has dyslexia and ADD. And so, you know, we have to have 504 meetings periodically. And, um, and what's a 504 meeting? That, those are the meetings where her accommodations are laid out. The accommodation she's federally uh, entitled to because she has disabilities. The, mm -hmm. AD, uh, the ADA applies to her because she has dyslexia and AD, ADD. And so it never occurs to me to leave, but because I, I have money, right? I have money and I, I know how to advocate for my kids. And it becomes very apparent to the school I know how to advocate for my kids. They don't treat her any kind of way, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when I go to the school to have the meetings, you know, I'm, I, I told them last year, um, they were like, so we'll have a 504 next year. I said, no, we won't. I said, we'll have another one in 90 days. And they were like, oh, well, well we normally have one once a year. I said, yeah, but I'm entitled to a 504 anytime I request one in writing under the mm. law. So we'll have another one in 90 days. 
And, and yes. They, and, they, and they didn't say anything. Don't mess with so, a black mama. You know, right. so, you know, they're used to just kind of telling parents these things. But like, you know, I, I'm, you're not going to have one with my child once a year. We're going to have another one in 90 days. Right. So I think for me, it is recognizing that I do have a, a certain level of privilege. So no, I don't feel compelled to leave. But that's also kind of why I do the work that I do, because I try to empower my other brothers and sisters that I know don't have the privilege that I have and provide them with the information that I have mm -hmm. so that they can advocate for themselves too. Mm -hmm. Because this system will wookie you any chance it gets. It will steamroll you. It will run right over you. Um, and so I don't think the solution is running. I think the solution is playing the system on itself. That's right? what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. yes. You know, yeah. how do you... you, you they know, would you, love for us to leave. That's exactly Yeah, right. that's what they, they would love. We don't yeah. leave. Because yeah, I was I like, forget it. it. We going to Toronto. I'm not about <laughs> no, to deal with this foolishness. Yeah. Then I'm like, it's a little cold. So let's look Beat somewhere else. Beat them at else. their own game. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, I'm not going nowhere. I'm not going nowhere. I love it. Yeah. 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 I think it's, um, you know, I was, I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, you know, for all that we deal with as Black women, we're still far exceeding every yes. other demo you know what i'm saying so it's like we are we're highly educated we're the most educated right mm -hmm. like it just so why leave right like keep keep being who we are and then as things start to shift and, and that leads me to my next question guys is like do you guys feel the shift do you feel the change and then my my other question is like and this is a hot topic because I've been seeing a lot of stuff across all the social medias and a lot of different opinions. So please be real. But do y'all feel that right now white people, white women need to be quiet? Or do you feel like, like, what do you think the role of allies are? So like, do you see the change? And do you think it's, it's attributed to allies and that they're necessary? That's my question, mm -hmm. if that all makes sense. I see a glimmer of change, um, but I'm a huge Amanda Seals fan. And if you checked out, my girl is woke, Auntie Manta. Um, <laughs> she <laughs> recently said, you know, white people, and this is not all white people, and she made a point to say this, have profited off of lying to black people. So right now we're being fed the narrative that we've been wanting for 400 years. Finally recognized Juneteenth and damn it, it's hard being black in America. You're <laughs> finally getting it. Um, but is this cop actually gonna be found guilty and put to death? I mean, so I'm waiting on yeah. the result. I'm loving the streets being renamed. We didn't ask for that. Um, I'm loving okay. Juneteenth <laughs> and I'm loving people are learning more than MLK and Malcolm X and Rosa Parks. Yeah. I'm loving that. That should have been already happening. But what are you going to do about these police? What are you going to do about our black boys going to prison? And are we going to get this idiot out of office who is trying to promote killing us in the street? He's, he hasn't said anything. Um, so I guess... Um, TBD. Um, but yeah. in regards to the roles of ally, hell yeah, white women need to be on the front lines um, because they're part of the reason we're in this mess and they have responsibility for helping us get out of it. So we can be in the streets, marching and all of that, 
but I've yet to see in American history, except maybe in like Haiti, so that doesn't even count, where black people or slaves revolted and it was successful without the partnership, fortunately or unfortunately, of white people and at least white women. What do y'all think? Also, I just want to say with regard to allyship, we have got to reach a point where we stop talking about white participation in deconstructing white supremacy in terms of proximity to blackness. Because you can't be invested in deconstructing white supremacy because you're an ally. You have got to be deconstructed. You have got to be invested in deconstructing white supremacy because you are morally convicted that that shit is wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay? That that shit is wrong. So that's the first thing. It can't be about allyship because if you are only convicted because you are proximate to black people or because you want to be an ally to black people, that's not enough. You have to have a moral conviction in your heart that oppressing people for any reason or having hierarchies of men or marginalizing people for any reason is morally repugnant. Yes. So we have to just start there. It ain't about being an ally. You don't need to do it for me. You mm-hmm. need to do it for you. Yes. You need to do it because you Auntie are Amber. morally convinced yes. <laughs> that that shit is wrong. Yeah. So I get so tired of people talking about being my ally. Don't be my ally. Have a moral clarity about yourself that this is the wrong thing to do. And so that's the first thing. I, I don't need no white people to be my ally. Right. I need white people to have a moral sense of right and wrong and then yeah. act on their moral sense of right and wrong and do the right thing because it is the right thing to do, not because of what it has to do with me. Because right. we don't ask people to be allies of murder victims or ask white people to be allies of sexual assault victims. We ask people to do the morally right thing and that is to oppose rape and oppose murder and oppose theft and oppose all other kinds of morally repugnant stuff. And white supremacy is no different. And the fact that we set it up as some type of special thing, it is morally repugnant, just like every other thing that is morally repugnant in the world. So don't do it because you are proximate to me or because you got a black friend or a black cousin or right. a black man. You didn't do it because it's the right thing to do. Do it and when I'm not there. You know, exactly. do it when you're with your exactly. white friends and they're saying something that is obviously morally inappropriate. That's when I need, I don't need actually, that's when you need to step oh, up yes. and say that that is not okay. I think that's what we're expecting. And then I think it f- opens the floodgates because I know that in the black community, we are not, I'm going to use the word, but we are not allies to the homosexual community or the LGBTQ, I forget all the, it it keeps growing. Um, Yes. Yes. We, we don't, we want you to fight our battle and march down Black Lives Matter Plaza. But when the Supreme Court just rules that you can't fire people, all of a sudden black people go missing. So Amber, I really like that, that it's not about proximity. It's about doing the right thing. I don't care how you get your O's. Why do well, I care till you do your job? That's, well, that's morally right. And I think that well, opens the door. You can't just be a Black Lives Matter ally and mm-hmm. not be fighting just as hard 
for my homosexual friend or my trans cousin. Human rights are human rights, whether it's color, religion, sexual orientation, whatever. So Amber, I think that point is so powerful. One time for the black church folks. Come on. Yes. Come on. They think that. One, they push and stop one, right now. One time, one time for the church folks, okay? We you, just lost you, a couple listeners. We don't have any, okay? but we just lost Listen, some. listen. Yeah. You can, we, we don't get to parse black lives. All black lives matter. All okay? black lives All black matter. lives yeah. matter. Yes. I, exactly. I talked about that on my social media the other day. Like, this is a clarion call for black people who have historically struggled with homophobia. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. cannot look at white people and demand our humanity Mm -hmm. (laughs) while trashing the humanity of our own black brothers and sisters who are LGBTQ. It does not work like that. And we do not look at our LGBTQ brothers and sisters and fight for their liberation as allies, we do it out of the abundance of our worship. Right. It is a it is a matter of worship. It is a heart thing. And so it is completely true. Like you do not, you cannot be selectively for liberation. You are either for liberation or you are against liberation. Liberation is not selected. You either believe in liberating people or you don't. Period. Yes. Period. Yeah. Oh, so. I, I, I like that. Too. That was deep. That's going to piss some people off. Well, no, I (laughs) I just feel like it's important though, because there's so many, I feel like within the black community, this is our, that's why, that was the main reason, Crystal, I was like, I need to talk to black women because I need to really understand, we need to have a come to Jesus moment where we all are on the same page. Because there's some people saying like, no allies, like that's not a thing, blah, blah. And Amber, I get exactly what you're saying. But, you know, I think, in my head, I'm like an ally is just saying they're going to do the work right on the back end. And I think that maybe we change that wording because I feel like the word ally is like a trigger at this point because people are like, because black folks like, "Uh uh-uh, you ain't no ally, (laughs) you white, be quiet, right? But it's like, no, if these white folks are trying to do the work and they're in their circles and they're calling out the people around them, that is being an ally. But absolutely. But I guess my thing is, I don't want them. And that's why when you asked earlier, you know, do you see the change? I'm seeing tons of Black Lives Matter. I'm seeing tons of the blackout days. We're sharing the mic and this and that. But that's because it's cool now. So what I liked about Amber's comment was, eventually this is going to fall out of the news realm. It won't be blasted everywhere where you can have photo shoots at the marches but your moral compass should still be saying i'm calling this shit out every time i see it i'm standing here recording the police i'm not going to let you beat this trans woman to death on the bus when there's tons of people around to stop it it's not about i think ally is a trend um that's going to go out with like coronavirus i think it's a trendy paper, word that type of thing yes. in 2020 but long after that moral compass needs to be there to say whether i'm trending as an ally or not this shit is wrong and it needs to be stopped and, and what real also, ally sorry, go oh go ahead no no, no. i was go just ahead. gonna say um i think it's important too that we remember where we came from you think about the 50s and 60s and you think about the protests and those crowds we my dad sound my exactly my dad really brought up the point that 
you know, he's not a very emotional person in background, like he's Muslim man, you know, doesn't really talk about his feelings. But he said, I never felt more pride than watching all of these young people who were brown, white, black, that came from every single different culture that we didn't have in the 60s that, that were beside each other in all of those crowds. He's like, I've never felt that kind of, it's been years since I felt that kind of hope that the next generations will be better. You know, and I think it's also important to focus on the positive and focus where we can go. Um, I think the word ally, like you said, at this point might be a trendy word. It's a but trend. I'm it's over just it a trendy too. word. Yeah. And it's You've not been great, over it, but, Alice. <laughs> but I really do think if we were able to transform some people's mentality and how they're going to act when black people aren't there and how they're going to treat black exactly. people and how they won't let black people be treated poorly but then we made a difference and that's kind of how i feel about everything i feel really positive you know for the first week after george floyd like i couldn't sleep i felt horrible and going to the marches made me feel so much better to know that there yeah. were going to be people who had our backs and who really felt like this movement meant something. So that's where I'm at with it. Like, I don't love the word ally, but I do feel like there is a change. I also think the most important thing white people can do right now is listen. Yes. Because one thing that allies need to do is listen. It is not your time to talk or not your time to be in the front one thing white supremacy is really good about is erasing black women and black voices, particularly marginalized voices. So the one thing you can do right now to show that you have an alliance with black people is respect their voices. Don't try to speak for us. Don't, don't, you know, and, and, and have a humility about it. You don't need to post about it. If you want to be a real ally, just listen, listen and ingest the information believe black voices if we if, as we tell you what our experiences are you know believe it take the information in and apply it to your experiences because i think people think that being an ally is a very out loud intentional thing and it is a very quiet humble work of listening yeah. and applying the information that you are being presented about the experiences of people who are living and struggling every single day. And so I think sometimes people get caught up in the hoopla of a doing, but really it's a being. It's a being quiet. It's a being humble. It's a uh, being open to an experience and believing an experience that you could never have. And I think that is the most effective way to be an ally because a lot of people think that they need to be saying something and really that's privilege acting because it's not your movement. You've, you have your movements. This is our movement. And if you want to be an ally, be an ally by supporting it and listening. I love that. Yeah. That was deep. Yeah. Excellent. I actually had a white coworker who called me and he said, you know what, we've had conversations about race before, but he said that this is the first time that I realized that I was hearing, but I wasn't really listening. And he goes, now more than ever, I feel open to actually listening to the Black experience and looking at myself and being better in those moments that I know I can be better. And, you know, I think it's just those small little things of look, people looking in the mirror and realizing that they could be more humane, they could be more understanding. Um, so, 
yeah, I thought that was pretty amazing that he called me and that he felt like he was going to make the change. And I hope that we get more people who are like that. Yeah, just not being a bystander, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's what's important. And I'm not going to use the word ally after I say it just now. Ally is dead. Okay. Not your token blood No more allies. You can sit no there and be quiet and listen to us talk, but you're no longer a hashtag ally. Yeah. <laughs> this has been so great, ladies. I really appreciate y'all, y'all's time and your thoughts and opinions on such an important topic. Um, I know when we started the season, Oh God, we were talking about any and everything from friendships to travel. Um, but it seems like what is going on in America and in just the world has forced um, this podcast to position itself um, a little differently and really take on some really heavy topics that I don't think neither Alex nor myself had planned to discuss. Um, (laughs) Not at all. We're keeping it light and cute, but sometimes duty calls. So thank you ladies for lending us your voice and your time today. Thank you for having us. Yes, this is Allie J. And I'm Crystal Lowe. And that's it for this week. Be sure to tune in next Sunday at 12 p.m. Central for another episode of Not Your Token Black Girl. And also be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google. And follow me at Basic Allie on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the Crystal O. 